Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of May 21st, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And I am afraid that we are returning on this podcast to the uh, somewhat tiresome question of Noam Chomsky. I really wanted to leave Chomsky alone after we just did an entire rant dedicated to him a couple of weeks ago. But um, I was just so appalled by um, the most recent entry in the uh, incessant litany of sycophantic interviews with Chomsky, to which we are um, incessantly treated. Once again, every, you know, up-and-coming left journalist or media producer feels like they've got to, you know, do the requisite Chomsky interview, you know, going to him as, you know, some oracle of wisdom and not even throwing him any hardballs, but, you know, entirely softballs, no challenging questions whatsoever. And um, the latest such entry has made a little bit of a social media splash for um, reasons which I shall explain. It was produced April 27th by a... um, an entity seemingly based in the Netherlands calling itself Edu Kitchen. Under the title, you can Google it up, it's on YouTube, quote, Noam Chomsky on the Russia-Ukraine war, the media, propaganda, Orwell, newspeak, and language, end quote. And I find the invocation of Orwell, you know, frustratingly ironic just from the get-go because, uh, You know, I've pointed out before that there are very, very clear elements of groupthink and leader worship in the cult of Chomsky. This was especially apparent in the sycophantic movie that was made about him in 1992, entitled Manufacturing Consent, named after his book of a few years earlier, where Chomsky was repeatedly pictured holding forth from a giant screen overlooking some kind of public mall, exactly like Big Brother spewing from the telescreens in George Orwell's novel 1984. Now, I don't know if this was intended as, you know, intentionally ironic, or if it was unintentionally ironic, which would make it even more ironic. (laughs) But um, in this new interview with Edu Kitchen... The invocation of Orwell is just hideously ironic, and uh, I could not let it go without comment, because it turns out to be an exemplar of the Orwellian manipulation of Orwell, not exposing the Orwellian rhetoric of the ruling elites, but engaging in Orwellian distortions of its own in the ultra-cynical guise of exposing the Orwellian rhetoric of the ruling elites. And this is another example of how, you know, polluted the entire intellectual atmosphere has become in recent years. We have, as discussed on previous podcasts, the phenomenon of fascist pseudo-anti-fascism and pro-war pseudo-pacifism, and now we have the Orwellian exploitation of Orwell. And this interview came to my attention when um, Glenn Greenwald, 
who is a frequent guest on Tucker Carlson, promoted a tweet with an excerpt from the video, especially highlighting the passage in which, and I kid you not, Chomsky praises Donald Trump. All right. Now, um, in dissecting what is said and all of the hideously cynical distortions in this interview, uh, I am going to be reading from my own transcript of the video because it does not appear to have been transcribed before. It's just in video form, with the exception of that brief quote, which was... um, tweeted by Glenn Greenwald. Again, uh, in my transcription and what I'm going to be reading, I am condensing slightly for length in places, but never in such a way as to alter the meaning at all, and certainly not changing any words. So, forthwith. The interviewer begins by uh, noting the latest Ukraine military aid package which was just approved by Congress, and asks, what kind of narrative do you tell the Americans to get them to accept this? Assuming right off the bat that we should oppose it, without explaining why. And Chomsky, right off the bat, the very first thing that he says in response to this question is, and I quote verbatim, well, there is fortunately one statesman in the United States and Europe a very high political figure, who has made a sensible statement on how you can solve the crisis, namely by facilitating negotiations instead of undermining them and moving toward establishing some kind of accommodation in Europe in which there are no military alliances but just mutual accommodation. He didn't say it, but it's something like what George H.W. Bush, the first Bush, not the second, proposed in the early 90s, when, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, he proposed a partnership for peace, which would be open to Europeans generally, Eurasians as well. It wouldn't eliminate NATO, but he would live up to his promise to Gorbachev that NATO would never expand to the east and move toward a Eurasia with no military alliances. He suggested something similar, Move toward negotiations instead of escalating the war. Try to see if you can bring about an accommodation, which would be roughly along these lines. His name is Donald J. Trump. The one statement I know of in the West. Not my favorite person, incidentally. I think he's the most dangerous person maybe in history. But let's tell the truth. He's the one person who said it, and it's the right way out. Others have said it too, but not in high positions. End quote. So I heard this, I'm just aghast. I mean, you know, Chomsky's really hit bottom, praising Donald Trump. And again, he engages in this, uh, you know, throwaway line of he's not my favorite person, he's the most dangerous person ever, blah, 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 which is inserted for purposes of deniability. This is a little rhetorical trick that Chomsky has used again and again. Uh, by way of comparison, I will note that the um, the interview that I cited before that Noam Chomsky gave to Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! in April of 2017 after the Khan Shikun chemical attack in Syria. He spent most of his time 
on the topic, floating the conspiracy theory that the rebels gassed themselves as a provocation, directly loaning propaganda service to the genocidal Bashar Assad dictatorship. But he added the throwaway line that Assad's regime is a, quote, murderous, brutal regime, end quote, when the entire point of his comments was to baselessly exculpate the regime of mass murder, serving the direct propaganda aims of the regime. But, you know, throws in this, uh, you know, escape clause for purposes of deniability, unless anybody accuse him of being a regime supporter, which he objectively is. So that's what he's doing here in this new interview with Ed U. Kitchen regarding Donald Trump with this, you know, throwaway line, not my favorite person. <sighs> All right. And uh, again, let's turn to the original sources. What did Trump actually say? Well, I tried to Google it up and it seems to be based on, uh, you know, one line from a, uh, an interview in, on April uh, 22nd from an account on uh, the website The Hill. Quote, it doesn't make any sense that Russia and Ukraine aren't sitting down and working out some kind of agreement, Trump said, which in fact they were. Zelensky was actually undertaking a dialogue with Russia, commendably taking the moral high ground, even as Ukraine cities were being bombed and Mariupol destroyed, just as Grozny and Aleppo had been destroyed by Russian firepower before. So this is the great statesman that Chomsky is praising? Doesn't even have his facts right? And then the Hill noted an earlier quote from Trump, quote, They asked me if Putin is smart. Yes, Putin was smart, he told a rally last month, which would have been March. That's a hell of a way to negotiate. Put 200,000 troops on the border, Trump added. That was a big mistake, but it looked like a great negotiation. That didn't work out too well for him, end quote. So totally equivocal, essentially saying that he admires Putin's warmongering as a shrewd way to wrest a good deal, but only regrets that it didn't work out for him. This is what Chomsky is asking progressives to emulate? The mind boggles. Now, we could examine more of the uh, verbatim of Chomsky's Trump fawning. He says that he's in a high position what high position? Trump doesn't hold any public office. He's just a demagogue and nothing but. Unbelievable the way that Chomsky flatters him. But what's really critical is to examine the political distortions here. There already was an accommodation in Europe, which was Ukraine's declared neutrality upon independence in 1991 and its surrender to Russia of the nuclear weapons left on its territory after the Soviet collapse in exchange for recognition of its borders and sovereignty by the great powers under terms of the Budapest Memorandum of 1994. Okay, that was the accommodation in Europe. And it was sabotaged by Vladimir Putin's design to rebuild the Russian Empire and his utter rejection of the very notion of Ukrainian sovereignty. So Chomsky is erasing nearly a generation of Putin's destabilization efforts and eight years of actual armed aggression against Ukraine. There's no mention of the uh, 1999 Chechnya war. 
the massive bombardment of Grozny, the 2008 Georgia war, the ongoing Russian bombardment of Syria, starting in 2015, the destruction of Aleppo by Putin's warplanes, it's like none of this even happened. Much less the real elephant in the room, which is Putin actually carving pieces off of Ukraine, starting in 2014. I'll add that it's slightly ominous, perhaps, that Chomsky is uh, using the word Eurasia, which is a Putinist propaganda term emerging from, uh, you know, his ideological guru, Alexander Dugan, the notion that Eurasia is a distinct entity from and in opposition to Europe. But uh, more importantly is the notion that there was a promise, quote unquote, made to Gorbachev that NATO would not expand. I once again refer readers to the recent book by Mary Elise Sarot of Johns Hopkins University, Not One Inch, America, Russia, and the Making of Post-Cold War Stalemate, which goes over the facts of this period in exacting detail, noting that the so-called promise that NATO would expand not one inch to the east was a mere verbal agreement that was made by James Baker Poppy Bush's Secretary of State, to Gorbachev speaking unofficially, whereas the assurances for Ukraine's borders and sovereignty were actually written down and signed by the leaders of the United States, Russia, and the United Kingdom in the Budapest Memorandum of 1994. And if you don't have time to read Sarot's book, the salient points are all in her essay, Containment Beyond the Cold War, How Washington Lost the Post-Soviet Peace, which appears in the November-December 2021 issue of Foreign Affairs. You can Google it up and read it, and you will see that you are getting a very distorted view of things from Noam Chomsky. But it's so telling that you have this icon of the supposed anti-imperialist left looking to Poppy Bush and even Donald Trump as exemplars of reason exemplifying once again the convergence of the paleo-isolationist right and the so-called anti-imperialist left, which of course has no critique at all of Russian imperialism. So then the interviewer repeats his question, how do you get support for this military aid, again, assuming that it's a bad thing, without actually examining the argument? And Chomsky replies, that's where manufacturing consent comes in, citing the name of his own work, modestly. You whip people into hysteria to destroy the enemy who is the ultimate evil. It's an old story, goes back to World War I. In every country, the intellectuals engaged in hysterical denunciation of the enemy. There were tales of German barbarity and the liberal intellectuals lapped it up and whipped the country into such anti-German hysteria that everyone went to war with enormous enthusiasm to kill the hated Germans. Well, there was an outcome to the war. Germany was defeated, and the great statesmen decided to crush Germany. That gave us someone named Adolf Hitler. Well, there are lessons we can learn from that if we want to, end quote. Well, first note that he called Trump a statesman with no sense of irony, but now uses 
the same word with um, a sense of irony all of a sudden. But uh, it's more important to note that we are conveniently talking about World War One, and not World War Two, which is by far the more appropriate analogy to the current situation. It was Chomsky's beloved Poppy Bush who declared a so-called New World Order in 1991 and reveled in the unipolar world and essentially crushed Russia in the Cold War endgame and aftermath, acquiescing in the imposition of economic austerity on Russia and the other former Soviet states, and playing ball with the corrupt and vodka-sodden Yeltsin, all of that gave us someone named Vladimir Putin, who has now essentially done to Ukraine what Hitler did to Poland. So if you're looking to an analogy from the present moment, Chomsky, it isn't 1914, it's 1939. But recognizing that raises implications he obviously wishes to avoid. Okay, then he goes on to cite a supposed poll showing widespread public support in the United States for war with Russia. I personally don't place that much stock in polls myself. And he goes on to say that the reason for this, this supposed public support for war, quote, is they hear it from the media and members of Congress making heroic speeches and Churchill impersonations about how we should set up a no-fly zone. Fortunately, there's one peacekeeping element of the American government known as the Pentagon, and the Pentagon is blocking it because they don't want to destroy the world. They understand, even if the congressmen don't, that if you're going to set up a no-fly zone, that means you have to destroy Russian anti-aircraft facilities, which are in Russia, so you have to bomb Russia. What happens then? Does it take a genius to figure it out? So fortunately, the Pentagon is the peacekeeping element of the government, but not the halls of Congress, end quote. So here we have the anti-war guy looking to the Pentagon and the top military brass as peacekeepers and supporting the notion that military commanders should have veto power over the policymaking of elected officials. Unbelievable. And again, pointing to a left convergence with the paleocon right, which is basically nostalgic for isolationism and just believes in giving dictators free reign, dictators and military aggressors. Okay, then they turn to the question of language. We get more problematic still. Chomsky says, quote, take the phrase unprovoked Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's de rigueur. Anyone who wants to talk about it has to talk about the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, pronouncing it as if it's in quotes, end quote. And then he says that he did a a comparison of Google results for the phrase unprovoked invasion of Ukraine and unprovoked invasion of Iraq and finds that the prior brings back over a million hits versus uh, just a few thousand for the latter, which is, of course, predictable. So, um, you know, there he goes back to the one and only point he is capable of making, which is that the Western media have a double standard, which is one to file under, no, you think? And in fact, you know, this double standard is 
universally acknowledged, at least implicitly, <laughs> in the uh, you know reaction to the gaffe that we just saw by W. Bush just this week, where he, in a speech at his uh, presidential center in Dallas, he condemned the, quote, unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. Oops, I mean Ukraine. <laughs> and everybody laughed. So the double standard is entirely clear. You don't have to be the world's leading intellectual <laughs> to be cognizant of the double standard. But what Chomsky says next gets much, much worse because uh, pointing out the double standard is a legitimate point, if an entirely obvious one. But next he gets into the kind of dangerous territory that you inevitably come to by making that double standard the only point it is permissible to make. Because as I've stated before, it leads to a distorted view of reality and makes any crimes committed by any other power completely invisible to you. So next he goes on to say that this double standard, quote, totally inverts the facts. The Russian invasion of Ukraine was demonstrably provoked, quote unquote. And in defense of this improbable assertion, he says that, quote, NATO, meaning the United States, has since 2014 been sending advanced weapons to Ukraine, carrying out military operations with Ukraine, blah, 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 end quote. Uh, all right, let's examine this. Advanced weapons, uh, mostly anti-tank guided missiles, so-called javelins, holding back on giving Ukraine the far more critical anti-aircraft weapons until after the invasion began in March. Uh, yes, beginning in 2017, the um, rapid Trident NATO exercises have involved Ukraine. And why would that be? Gee, what happened in 2014 that would have driven Ukraine into the arms of NATO? The de facto Russian annexation of Donbass and the de jure illegal annexation of Crimea don't even get a mention in Chomsky land nor the fact that the NATO joint maneuvers involving Ukraine have been mirrored every step of the way in Russian joint maneuvers with Belarus along Ukraine's borders. Completely invisible to Chomsky. More to the point still, he doesn't seem to understand how international law works. Until Ukraine attacks Russian territory, Russian attacks on Ukrainian territory are unprovoked and illegal as a matter of international law. And of course, there was no Ukrainian attack on Russian territory. There was only unprovoked Russian attacks on Ukrainian territory, starting in 2014 and far more massively now in 2022. So Chomsky is simply flipping reality on its head while accusing others of doing exactly that. And it gets worse. He points out that um, last September 1st, there was a uh, policy statement posted to the White House webpage, which he said called for, quote, enhanced integration of Ukraine into NATO, increased joint military exercises with the U.S., sending more weapons, and so on. You can look it up, he says. Well, I did. And actually, no, it doesn't say what he said it does. It does not use the phrase enhanced integration at all. Here's the verbatim. Listen carefully 
This is from the text of the uh, September 1st, 2021 Joint Statement on the U.S.-Ukraine Strategic Partnership from the White House website. Quote, We intend to continue our robust training and exercise program in keeping with Ukraine's status as a NATO Enhanced Opportunities Partner, capitalized as if it were a proper noun, which it is. Ukraine plans to continue taking steps to enhance democratic civilian control of the military, reform the security services, and modernize its defense acquisition process to advance its Euro-Atlantic aspirations. The United States supports Ukraine's plan to reform the security service of Ukraine by streamlining and clearly defining its authorities and strengthening regulations that protect human rights and provide for effective public oversight, end quote. Now, all of this is a polite diplomatic way of saying, no, Ukraine, you aren't ready to join the club yet. You still don't have sufficient democratic civilian control of the military. You still have some work to do in reforming your security services and cleaning up your human rights situation before we will entertain your Euro-Atlantic aspirations. Okay, stripped of all of the diplomatic euphemism, that's what this statement is saying. It does not take much sophistication to read between the lines here. And rather than, quote, enhanced integration into NATO, as Chomsky put it, as if that were verbatim, it's actually a bureaucratic category of a NATO enhanced operations partner, which is for states that may sometime down the line be considered for membership. And I'll point out that according to the NATO website, Ukraine is now one of six so-called enhanced operation partners, along with Australia, Finland, Georgia, Jordan, and Sweden. And note that there is all of this to-do at the moment about Sweden and Finland joining NATO. And the others aren't even on the table. So again, Chomsky has just distorted the meaning of this document almost into its complete opposite, even as he accuses those he criticizes of doing exactly that. Again, the cynicism of it is just staggering. But it gets worse. Quote, So it was definitely a provoked invasion, Chomsky concludes, adding the caveat, quote, that doesn't legitimize it, it was still aggression, end quote. But this is, again, more empty lip service of the worst kind. An empty ritual just so he can point to this verbiage as an escape clause if he is ever accused of legitimizing the invasion, which, of course, he is. If it was provoked, quote-unquote, then it is legitimate under international law, unless you're just throwing words around without regard for their meaning. Then he says, quote, This is a good example of how the intellectual world, including most liberals, line up with state power, end quote. Well, he's doing exactly that, except... He's lining up with Russian state power, and even to a degree with American state power, because the last time I checked, the Pentagon was a part of the American state. And I'll also point out that, you know, his dreaded liberal establishment 
is actually saying exactly the same damn thing that he is saying. I point you to a uh, New York Times editorial, actually written by the editorial board, not an op-ed, but an actual editorial of May 19th, entitled, The War in Ukraine is Getting Complicated and America Isn't Ready, quote-unquote. And it states, quote, it is not in America's best interest to plunge into an all-out war with Russia, even if a negotiated peace may require Ukraine to make some hard decisions, end quote. So, implicitly saying that Ukraine will have to accept loss of territory and or limits on its sovereignty as the cost of peace for the rest of the world. Exactly Chomsky's position. How ironic. But it gets worse. The interviewer then goes on to invoke George Orwell, correctly pointing out that Putin's term for the Ukraine invasion, special military operation, is an Orwellian euphemism and an example of newspeak, although the interviewer doesn't even get the phrase right and calls it a special military invasion, which would not be a euphemism, but I guess we all know what he means. But Chomsky responds, without even acknowledging this Russian newspeak phrase that, quote, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine is newspeak, end quote. Well, no, it's not. It's a clear statement of fact. And the fact that this clarity is not also applied to the Bush invasion of Iraq in 2003 does not change that. In fact, implying that the Ukraine invasion is anything other than unprovoked is the distortion of reality. Again, if Ukraine is a sovereign state, it has the right to join any alliance it wants, just as Russia has the right to pursue its collective security treaty organization, its own military bloc of former Soviet states. And if Russia does not want Ukraine to join NATO it could consider refraining from the kind of behavior that has led Ukraine's leadership to seek protection from NATO since 2014 and even earlier. Hey, just a thought. But from listening to to Chomsky, you would never know anything about the uh, Russian incursions into Donbass starting in 2014, or the Russian illegal annexation of Crimea, or the oppression of the Crimean Tartars, the indigenous people of the Crimean Peninsula. And I'll point out, just again, news from this week, a court in Russia has just sentenced another group of Crimean Tartars to lengthy prison terms on charges of belonging to a banned political organization, basically for their nonviolent protest against the Russian annexation of their homeland and abrogation of their regional autonomy which they had enjoyed under Ukrainian rule. Since the Russian annexation, over 30 Crimean Tartars have been sentenced to lengthy prison terms for such activities. More than half this year alone. But you would never know a thing about that from listening to Noam Chomsky. Then, in an apocryphal comment with no sources cited, Chomsky says that there is a view on the part of Western liberal intellectuals once again, as if that's the worst thing to be, shudder, a liberal intellectual, 
that, quote, we must carry out a grotesque experiment as to what Putin will do if we tempt him by refusing to offer a political settlement, by not offering any way out, to see if this Hitlerian madman, sarcastic tone of voice, of course, will slink away in defeat or use the power, which of course he has, to destroy Ukraine. Then what does that tell you about their attitudes towards Ukrainians on the part of Western intellectuals? No, Chomsky, the more relevant question is what do your words tell us about your attitude towards Ukrainians? That they should accept having their territory being carved up by an aggressor nation and accede to limits on their sovereignty, because dictating what alliance they can join is exactly that. You find one damn Ukrainian who is talking this way, Chomsky, that they have, you know, some responsibility to world peace to accept defeat. Find one Ukrainian who is talking that way. We'll be waiting. You're the one who's got a condescending attitude toward Ukrainians. And as for, you know, Putin destroying Ukraine, I'll point out that he's already destroying Ukraine. Not that there isn't potential for, you know, things to be much, much worse, God knows, but Mariupol has already been reduced to rubble over the past weeks. Again, invisible to Chomsky. But uh, here we get to the really big, ultra-cynical finish. Chomsky mentions an introduction which was written to the book Animal Farm, which was, of course, Orwell's allegorical fable of the betrayal of the Russian Revolution, an introduction which was written for, but not published in the original edition of the book in 1943, and only added to some posthumous editions of the book. And Chomsky summarizes that this book is about a totalitarian enemy, but there is also literary censorship in England, where unpopular ideas can be suppressed without the use of force. And he goes on to quote a little bit of the essay, including the notion that there are certain things you just don't say due to the prevailing cultural consensus, like, by way of contemporary example, unprovoked invasion of Iraq. And Chomsky... <laughs> ironically urges us to read this essay. Now, I had already read it, of course, but I went back and revisited it for this podcast. But Chomsky actually seems to be gambling that most people will not check out the essay, because if they did, they would become aware of his gross distortions. So uh, what kind of unpopular ideas was Orwell talking about in this introduction? Well, he writes, and I quote, from the Orwell. <clears throat> this book was first thought of, so far as the central idea goes, in 1937, but was not written down until about the end of 1943. By the time it came to be written, it was obvious that there would be great difficulty in getting it published. And in the event, it was refused by four publishers. One publisher actually started by accepting the book but after making the preliminary arrangements, he decided to consult the Ministry of Information, who appeared to have warned him, or at any rate strongly advised him, against publishing it. End quote. 
Obviously because in 1943, the USSR was a wartime ally of the United Kingdom. And actually, I guess the book was published in 1944, if it was written at the end of 43. So uh, uh, to continue from Orwell's text, and you can see how Chomsky selectively cherry-picked his words to avoid a rather critical and central point. Quote, Unpopular ideas can be silenced and inconvenient facts kept dark without the need for any official ban. Anyone who has lived long in a foreign country will know of instances of sensational items of news, things which, on their own merits, would get big headlines, being kept right out of the British press, not because the government intervened, but because of a general tacit agreement that it wouldn't do. To mention this particular fact, at any given moment, there is an orthodoxy, a body of ideas which it is assumed that all right-thinking people will accept without question. It is not exactly forbidden to say this, that, or the other, but it is not done to say it, just as in Victorian times it was not done to mention trousers in the presence of a lady. Anyone who challenges the prevailing orthodoxy finds himself silenced with surprising effectiveness. A genuinely unfashionable opinion is almost never given a fair hearing, either in the popular press or in the highbrow periodicals. At this moment, what is demanded by the prevailing orthodoxy is an uncritical admiration of Soviet Russia. Everyone knows this. Nearly everyone acts on it. Any serious criticism of the Soviet regime, any disclosure of facts, which the Soviet government would prefer to keep hidden, is next door to unprintable. And this nationwide conspiracy to flatter our ally takes place, curiously enough, against a background of genuine intellectual tolerance. For though you are not allowed to criticize the Soviet government, at least you are reasonably free to criticize our own. Hardly anyone will print an attack on Stalin, but it is quite safe to attack Churchill, at any rate, in books and periodicals. And throughout five years of war, during two or three of which we were fighting for national survival, countless books, pamphlets, and articles advocating a compromise peace have been published without interference. More, they have been published without exciting much disapproval. So long as the prestige of the USSR is not involved, the principle of free speech has been reasonably well upheld. There are other forbidden topics, but the prevailing attitude towards the USSR is much the most serious symptom. End quote. From Orwell's original unpublished introduction, and it's pretty obvious why it was unpublished, <laughs> to the book Animal Farm, on its uh, first edition, I guess, 1944, uh, the text of which is online at the Orwell Foundation website under the title, The Freedom of the Press. But how many people watching the Edu Kitchen interview will just accept Chomsky's cynical, selective interpretation of Orwell's words and not bother to actually look up the Orwell essay? This is the most egregious example of the Orwellian manipulation of Orwell.
because Chomsky and his followers are trying to create precisely an atmosphere where it is taboo to criticize Russia, at least on what passes for the left these days. And if that was a somewhat forgivable error in 1943, when Russia was A, communist, and B, a wartime ally against a fascist aggressor, it is a completely unforgivable error today when Russia is itself a fascist aggressor. And by failing to recognize this, Chomsky is playing into the, uh, you know, fascist pseudo-anti-fascism, as I call it, of Putin and his Orwellian fiction that his, you know, doing to Ukraine what Hitler did to Poland in 1939 is in the name of, you know, denazification, quote-unquote. And I'm going to uh, point out that um, also in the New York Times on May 19th, in an op-ed, the historian Timothy Snyder calls it straight, a piece entitled with refreshing frankness, quote, we should say it, period, Russia is fascist, period, end quote. And uh, Timothy Snyder has this to say about the phenomenon that we here at Counter Vortex call um, fascist pseudo-anti-fascism, quoting from Timothy Snyder's op-ed in the New York Times of May 19th, quote, fascists calling other people fascists is fascism taken to its illogical extreme as a cult of unreason. It is a final point where hate speech inverts reality and propaganda is pure insistence. It is the apogee of will over thought. Calling others fascists while being a fascist is the essential Putinist practice. Jason Stanley, an American philosopher, calls it undermining propaganda. I have called it schizofascism. The Ukrainians have the most elegant formulation. They call it Rusism, end quote. Yeah, well, in your next op-ed piece, Timothy Snyder, you can cite Bill Weinberg <laughs> and my phrase, fascist pseudo-antifascism, because that, I humbly submit, is the phrase that calls it out most clearly. And note Orwell's words that when Britain was fighting for its national survival, there were countless books, pamphlets, and articles advocating a compromise peace. Well, Chomsky now is precisely advocating a compromise peace at a moment when Ukraine is fighting for its national survival. Now, not to belabor the obvious, but everyone understands the risks of standing up to Russia. There is nobody who does not get that, which is precisely why there hasn't been a no-fly zone, and why nobody in power is talking about NATO getting involved in the conflict. In fact, everyone in power in the West is talking about keeping NATO out. The illusion goes precisely the other way on the part of Chomsky and his wing of the so-called left intelligentsia who refuse to see any risk in not standing up to Russia. And those risks are also real, as history demonstrates all too amply. This is a situation that calls for grappling, not glibness. 
And for all of his talk about how Western leaders are congratulating themselves for their heroism, nothing is more glib than Chomsky and his minions implicitly congratulating themselves for their pacifism, or realism, or pragmatism, as the paleocons call it. And I'm going to close with a uh, another little quote that I've invoked before, but is worth revisiting from another Orwell essay entitled Notes on Nationalism, 1945, where um, he describes different kinds of, you know, nationalism that encourage narrow dogmatism and groupthink. But he also includes some ideologies that, strictly speaking, are not forms of nationalism, but have much the same intellectual effect, including pacifism. I quote from the essay, Pacifist literature abounds with equivocal remarks, which, if they mean anything, appear to mean that statesmen of the type of Hitler are preferable to those of the type of Churchill, and that violence is perhaps excusable if it is violent enough. After the fall of France, the French pacifists, faced by a real choice which their English colleagues have not had to make, mostly went over to the Nazis. And in England, there appears to have been some small overlap of membership between the Peace Pledge Union and the Black Shirts, the two most significant pacifist and pro-fascist organizations in England in the day. So uh, here's my little updated rendering of this same passage. The pacifist literature abounds with equivocal remarks, which, if they mean anything, appear to mean that statesmen of the type of Trump or Putin are preferable to those of the type of Biden, and that violence is perhaps excusable if it is violent enough. In the United States, there appears to be some significant overlap of membership between the anti-imperialist left and the MAGA right. And then I'll return to Orwell's verbatim just to finish the passage. All in all, it is difficult not to feel that pacifism, as it appears among a section of the intelligentsia, is secretly inspired by an admiration for power and successful cruelty. End quote. And this is exactly what I hear when Chomsky lectures the Ukrainians that they should accept defeat and basically the extinction of their country as a sovereign entity so that the war does not escalate to the point where it might affect life in Massachusetts or Arizona, Chomsky's two most significant haunts. All I can say is that Orwell would shit at his name and legacy being invoked in the defense of Russian aggression and dictatorship. I say Noam Chomsky hands off George Orwell. This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. I make my living as a freelance writer. And since the invasion of Ukraine, I have been foregoing freelance work in order to concentrate on trying to bring some clarity to these questions on the Counter Vortex podcast and website. In order to continue this, I need your support. Please sign up, not later, but right now, 
at patreon.com slash countervortex and become a supporter at the rate of just one or two dollars per weekly podcast. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the Resistance. And rant on you next time.